Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra is bringing classical music to students in rural Iowa. We'll find all about Kids Symphony later this hour. But first, Deborah Marcourt has been writing poetry, songs, and essays for decades, inspiring her readers, her listeners, and her students. She is a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences and teaches in the MFA program in creative writing and the environment at Iowa State University. She's also the Iowa Poet Laureate, amongst other things. And she has just published a new book that features her new poetry, but also 30 years of collected works. It's called Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. And Deborah Marcourt is with me now. Hello. Hi, Charity. It's so great to be here. 30 years, that sounds so daunting. <laughs> it does, but it's also pretty magical. When you when you look through the collection, I, you know, when you get toward the back, we're reading poetry from the mid-90s. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that, you know, and I started out as a musician, so those were my early kind of one of my graduate students calls them wranglings, my early wranglings with um, with poetry because I was really a musician interested in song lyrics first and then brought all that I knew about lyrics over to writing poetry. What was it about poetry that captured you? Because uh, you were already writing song lyrics, which is very similar <laughs> to poetry, yes. but, but what drew you in that direction? I think, um, I mean, I've spoken about this before, but I, I lost everything in a fire in 1980. I was in a touring rock band and not really writing at all, not living a very contemplative life at all, just, you know, moving forward, playing playing every night uh, on the road. And then when the fire happened, that stalled my life out, and I ended up sort of stranded in a efficiency apartment in North Fargo with really no, you know, nothing to do, no money, um, and so writing uh, and language stepped in at that moment and kind of filled the gap. And, you know, many writers and artists will talk about having a sort of predilection of loss um, that started or either either started or kind of continued to fuel and inspire their creative process. So I think we make things toward that which we have lost and that we miss and that we're far away from. And the writing will fill the gap, will make the connection. With poetry, there is not always as big and ready an audience for poetry as there <laughs> there is with other kinds of writing. And, and so I wonder when you write poetry, if you think about your readers, or is this something just for you? Oh, I, I always think about uh, potential readers, and I think about the way the work will enter the world because I really believe that words have language. You know, the origins of poetry are um, probably songs, prayers, um, chants, curses, things like that, things that were intended to go into the world and and make a difference. And, you know, I just really believe the acoustic value of each word, it goes into the world and it it continues to move through the world, even though the, its acoustic um, sound has decayed and we don't hear it anymore. It is, it is part of the audible world after that. And so 
I just feel like I'm part of a chorus, like a large chorus. Um, and we're all singing, you know, we're all singing together our various parts. When you put this collection together, those poems from the 90s, had you read them recently? <laughs> no, no, I really hadn't, you know, because you publish a book and then you sort of go on tour and read from it. And then the next book comes out and you sort of pay attention to that one and and tend to read, you know, I think like most poets, I tend to read my most recent poems that I've written. Some of it is trying it out on audiences and seeing how it goes. And some of that, in, you know, also influences the shaping of the poem. After one has read it aloud to an audience, you can sort of see what worked and what didn't. So you sort of leave your you know, your oeuvre behind, your body of work. Um, so it was really something to sit in when I proofed the galleys for the book to sort of read all the way back to my first poetic work. What did you learn from that? Well, it was really a strange experience because I was in Ireland at the time, and I I take students to Ireland on a study abroad course, um, a traveling writer's workshop. So we go to Ireland for three and a half weeks and we travel all over Ireland and go to events. And, and you know, the Irish are known for their reverence for poetry. They really do believe that poetry is important. Unlike, as you so kindly put it earlier, you know, American audiences are less interested in poetry. Um, I mean, people who love poetry in this country love it fiercely, but it's not necessarily a force in this country. Um, but in Ireland, you know, people will stand up in the middle of a bar and recite a poem and everyone will sit and listen to it, you know. So to be traveling in Ireland and then proofing my work, I think what I took away from it was just, it gave me additional confidence in the work, that it was important, that it had value, and, um, and that, you know, I had been working towards something all of these years refining my skill, learning how to new, do new things, trying to engage um, the questions that were sort of coming to me, either through cult the culture, through the news, through my own experience um, with family. So just really trying to uh, kind of curate experiences and then boil them down and, you know, turn them into something really, really condensed that you could then offer to a reader I always talk about poetry as a kind of nutrition. Nutrition, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's, um, you know, there's a great quote from William Carlos Williams. It's, it's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day from lack of what is found there. And I think the lack of what is found there that people don't get in their everyday lives is this sort of condens you know, condensing of meaning and a poet really looking at things and meditating on it and contemplating and then finding a small arrangement of words that can encapsulate a, a huge complexity in, in just, you know, one page in just two minutes of hearing a poem. And that's not something that we really get in our everyday lives where there's just so much um, noise and clutter in our audible, audible world, not, you know, the news the sound on the street, the sound in our buildings where we work, the lights, the 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 exchange, you know, air exchange systems. There's a lot of noise in our lives. So poetry is intended to 
quiet everything around you for that very small moment and then bring some small, you know, edible piece of nutrition. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes there's just this, the resonance in a poem that really speaks to you. I, I feel like it would magnify that silence in such a, a beautiful way. That's right. Yeah, there's, um, and we, you know, poets work for those moments. Um, and some of a poem is a kind of a staging area for maybe one or two lines in a poem that um, hopefully will deliver something really powerful and meaningful and moving for a reader. And, you know, <clears throat> sometimes these are called, um, so you can compare them to like the high note in the aria that an opera singer sings. The whole song sort of works toward that moment. Would you read a poem for us? Would you read the title poem from the newest collection, The Gratitude with <laughs> the Dogs Under Stars? Yeah, um, well, I would. I'd love to. Thank you so much. And, you know, a lot of these poems in the sort of quote-unquote new part of the book, which is about 21 new poems, they were written when I lived along a creek in southwest, the southwestern part of Ames. And this creek was a, you know, throughway for all kinds of critters. And so it was an entertaining place. And my dogs were a big, are a big part of my life during this period of my life. So this is basically you know, one night when they had to go to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and begrudgingly I took them out and then had this experience. Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. Bless this night. Bless the small bladders of dogs, urgent under moonlight. Bless Raccoon and her brothers, those masked 3 a.m. bandits who lowered themselves on branches of verbinum with eerie five-fingered hands into the dumpster, who scavenged melon rinds, burger wrappers, tossed oily tuna cans to pavement with a chime that pricked the ears of my sleeping Lhasa Apsos. Those litter mates, bred to guard monasteries, who have warned me awake, bless their low ruff and wine, and bless the scramble for boots, coats, leashes, propelled into this obsidian night under indigo skies, crisp exhale puffed into clouds. Above us, velvety stillness, Sirius, a twinkling beacon in a stippled southern sky. Castor and Pollux, those star twins, throwing their geminid tracers, scattershot pinpricks of radiance into darkness. Above us, this afterimage of ancient supernovas, billions of years old, violent light moving toward us. Let us witness their brilliance going. From this blessed place on earth, we fortunate mortals on the ground, living amongst terrestrials, who sniff and paw the dirt, who kick back their legs and growl at the darkness, while above us, so much deadly light to wish upon. That is Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars by Deborah Marcourt, also the title of her latest book. And Deb, I hope you uh, can acknowledge how much, I guess, uh, just 
patience or <laughs> or con- <laughs> self-control I'm exercising here to not do the whole whole interview about all of the wonderful things that our dog companions give us. But, <laughs> but that is it's such a beautiful poem about the a moment where you were fully present and then you take us with you and and make us fully present in that moment. It is really, really beautiful. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you so much, Charity. Well, you know, it is a moment of, you know, I'm sort of grumbling and angry about being woken up in the middle of the night and then sort of the cosmos open to me. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Deborah Marquardt. Her new book is Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars, New and Collected Poems. And we'll hear a little more poetry in a moment. Deborah Marquardt is also a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences at Iowa State University and our state poet laureate. More in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we will find out about Kids Symphony. It is the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra's outreach program for students in rural Iowa. They've got a lot of concerts in rural Iowa coming up on Saturday and Sunday. We'll find out more. With me right now is Deborah Marcourt. She is a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences and teaches in the MFA program in creative writing and the environment at Iowa State University. She is the Iowa Poet Laureate, and she's just published a new book that features some new poetry and also 30 years of collected works. It's called Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. And Deb, before we get too far along, I would love for you to read another poem because I that that title poem is so beautiful, but that's not entirely emblematic of the kind of poetry that you write. You you have a lot of different kinds of poems, and I would love for you to read one called Pre-Existing Conditions, which has a, a very different tone. Yes, I wrote this poem in kind of an important political moment when the debate about the Affordable Health Care Act was, was moving through the Congress, and um, my sister died um, quite suddenly at the age of 58 around this time. And uh, so these two things came together, and it has an epigraph, um, pre-existing conditions. The poem has an epigraph from Sister Simone Campbell, who addressed the Assembly of the Democratic National Convention in 2012, and she said, um, I am my sister's keeper. Three weeks ago, my sister went on her lunch break and turned right for home rather than left for the clinic where she might have been forced to admit to the doctor that the pain in her left arm was something more than the chronic ache in her left shoulder from the latter fall while cleaning last year. Instead, she went home for soup, which is where my brother found her the next morning, seated at the kitchen counter with her head resting in her arms, as if she'd only fallen asleep after her boss reported she hadn't come to work. She rose each day at 5 a.m., to bake muffins and fresh bread, to make the potato salad and rotisserie chickens that stock the coolers and shelves for the convenience of people who don't have time to cook. 
too young for Medicare, at 58. She earned an hourly wage that held her just above the poverty line, just enough to disqualify her for Medicaid. I see now how she fell between the cracks. Sure, she tempted fate, cooked with too many eggs, too much salt, sugar, butter, and cream. Food was the love she offered the world, and didn't we gobble up every rich thing she put before us? Did she calculate the cost of the coverage offered her under the new Health Care Act and think, $400 a month, that's a car payment. That's 40 hours of labor, a full week of wages. How I wish she'd been forced to buy it. On that last morning, did she turn right for home instead of left for the clinic? Because she knew a trip to the doctor would mean a quadruple bypass, loss of a job, bankruptcy, the forced foreclosure of a house almost paid for, $700 left on the mortgage at the time of her death. So did she decide to take the pain and risk it, believing she was too tough to die? Well, she wasn't. To be human is to walk around with pre-existing conditions, always some muscle or valve poised to fail, some cell ready to grow wild. Never before have I wanted to speak to my president and say, Please, hurry up with this. She was my sister. Do you understand? As children, we shared a bathtub in those years of once-a-week Saturday night washings. I can still feel her soapy back against mine. As teenagers, we shared a bedroom, whispering late into the darkness between our twin beds, until one of us would grow tired and say, Little Red Schoolhouse on the Hill which was our private code for shut up now so that I can get some sleep. That's the poem Pre-Existing Conditions by Deborah Marquardt. Deb, I can tell you what that poem means to me, but I am curious. Obviously, this was an incredible loss, and I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you to be able to put those emotions, the anger, the grief, into a poem? Well, you know, it's a kind of purgative in a way. Um, I think whenever we lose a family member or someone close to us, there's so much room for regret and, you know, I wish I had done this, I should have known this, and I should have said this, and, you know, all of these misgivings. And one for me when my sister died was um, that I realized after the fact that she didn't have health insurance. And that was shocking to me, you know, that she had worked so hard, raised five children on her own, had always worked at least two jobs in my small hometown, and yet had didn't have health insurance, you know. And so the poem, I think some of these things, they, they fly in from different directions. And like I said, this sort of debate about the Health Care Act was going on, and then my sister's death, and then this realization after the fact. And they all kind of come together to make the, you know, the uh, impetus for a poem. And so it, it is, uh, you know, it is a gratifying feeling. And hopefully it resonates, you know, the hope is that by telling your own sto- story truly and deeply and honestly, that it will, you know, maybe make somebody do something differently or it'll help someone who's going through something not necessarily the same, but similar, um, help them 
feel it and understand it. And hopefully it resonates with, with people. You have been the Iowa Poet Laureate. Is it four years now? Uh, 2019. Okay. Uh Yeah. So, of course, you became (laughs) Iowa Poet Laureate right before the pandemic shut down every event ever and canceled (laughs) a lot of the plans that you have had. But um, (laughs) so tell me, looking back on the last four years, what do you feel you've been able to do as Iowa's Poet Laureate? Oh, you know, I don't know if I've been able to do anything, you know, too too dramatic, but uh, what I've really tried to do was go into all the corners of the state. Um, when invited and when not invited, I might be really rude and contact someone and say, do you want me to come to your library? Do you want me to come to your school? And people have been really generous and opened up their, you know, their facilities and um and I have to say, uh, teachers have so much trouble fitting a guest lecture into their classrooms. That's been the hardest piece is just finding time to to work my way into a class, which I always thought was very important because I would imagine I always imagined what it'd be like if I'd if I'd had a live poet come into my class, yeah. you know, growing up in my small hometown. So I'm trying to take poems and literary, you know, literary art to parts of the state that maybe don't have as much of it. Um, Some of the bigger cities and the college towns, we have a lot of this. But that's what I've tried to do and uh, and support other poets around the state and, uh, you know, just lift up the art form. For a woman who already has at least three, maybe more, four or five (laughs) jobs, um, (laughs) what has that been like? I mean, that sounds incredibly meaningful but also time consuming. <laughs> yeah, you know, it has been um I mean, sometimes I just throw my dogs in the car and they ride along with me and then, you know, then we ride home after the event or um but I think you know, the the real gift of it is just making contact with so many people around the state and you know, this this state is just full of like brilliant, creative, enthusiastic people, you know, who are doing amazing things in their hometown uh, to try to create culture and arts. You know, I just spent the weekend in Perry, Iowa, this wonderful town with the Art on the Prairie Conference. And this is the way that you find uh, like-minded people by going to these events. And often I'll do an event at a library and people walk in and say, oh, I didn't know you were interested in poetry, you know. And so people within communities are finding each other and hopefully creating writing groups so they can continue to support their, you know, their creativity. Right now, the nomination process for the next Poet Laureate of Iowa is going on. Are you engaged in that process? Yes, I'm part of it. And, you know, we're really looking forward to uh, passing the baton. Um, We... We all, you know, originally hoped that that the laureate position would move um, more quickly from one laureate to another, so more people could, you know, take it on and be, and we'd have greater representation. Um, and so it's exciting to see a new pool of poets who are part of that, you know, have been nominated into the pool. And so we're in the middle of the process right now of reviewing. Um, the the materials and then I'm sure you probably know how it works charity but you know this committee basically whittles it down to three people 
And then those three nominees go to the governor, and then the governor makes the final decision. It seemed very natural to me when you were named Iowa Poet Laureate, Deb, so I didn't, I didn't question it at all. But do you know how you were chosen, why, why you were selected? Well, I think I've just hung around so long. You know, I don't think that's it. I keep it. writing books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the thing, the thing is, you know, I really am a North Dakota poet. I mean, I really write mostly about North Dakota. And I was excited that more recently in my last book, I have written some Iowa poems. And then in my last book of prose, um, The Night We Landed on the Moon, I've got some Iowa essays. So I feel like I earned my, you know, I, I got my street cred <laughs> in <laughs> Iowa. Um but but um, I think I was on the list, you know, before. It's a pretty, you know, we try to, I think they try to, to pull in a lot of names. And so it's likely that people on the list have been on the list before. And, you know, they sort of move through the process. And, um, and you know, hopefully we're looking for someone who's, you know, inspiring and wants to go out and really engage with the community and kind of like, you know, keep the keep the oil, the light fire of, of poetry burning. So if, if people are listening right now, they, they can actually nominate people for Iowa Poet Laureate, right? I think the formal, um, the oh, formal nomination date is... I just date clicked on is, the page. Uh, You're right. No- it has passed. <laughs> November 1st, yeah. Um, Jenny Knibley from Iowa Arts Council and um, Heather Plukar from Humanities Iowa because the laureate sort of rests on the, those two institutions um, and so they would be able to, one of them would be able to answer if it's still possible to put name a name in. But, um, you know, hopefully we get a, a good, vibrant uh, pool of, of people to consider. Now, as I said, you already have three or four or five jobs, so it feels unfair <laughs> to ask you this question. But what what is next? I, I know you've got a couple of really big projects that you're working on. Yeah, I feel like my most important work is kind of in front of me. And, um, you know, every time you write a piece, it, you learn something. And then the next piece that you write, you, um, you know, you can use those techniques and you develop sort of a, a range of, of um, skills. So I'm working on this book um, called Leave It in the Ground, which is about the oil boom in my home state of North Dakota. But it's also about oil extraction and, and dependency on fossil fuels in general. And it's, you know, it's taking a lot of time and research um, to, I realize to say, leave it in the ground is a, on the surface, a very naive statement because the very idea of economy, you know, was created around uh, oil. You know, oil is the currency that drives our economies. Um, So I've done a lot of research to try to justify saying, leave it in the ground and saying sort of why it's necessary in our time and important. And um, so that's one book I'm working on. And, and, and that's the other one going is, to be oh, a book-length lyric poem. It is, yeah. It's, it's a tradition uh, called docu-poetry, so it does have documentary elements in it, including, say, for example, pr- scientific reports, um, you know, collage from um, possibly court transcripts, um, government policy, scientific reports, along with personal, you know, narratives. Um, So it's a kind of a pastiche, but it has a documentary uh, 
quality and it's a it's a book length poem yeah have you done something like that before a docu poem well i'm teaching a lot of them and um you know selfishly i whenever i'm interested in writing about something then i teach it first and then you know i've got all these cool uh brilliant graduate students to talk with it about you know uh so i learn i learn by doing that um but I would say that I have a long poem in Small Buried Things, which is my um, my my last collection. I had a, I wrote a long poem in five sequence poem um, about the oil boom. It's called Ground Zero, and so you know Small Buried Things is sort of the working title of that long poem. And so that poem had documentary elements in it. You're also working on another project called How Fish Learn to Sing. Tell me briefly about that. That one's more fun. (laughs) And I actually go back and forth between the two projects. I sort of, when I feel like an oil-slicked, you know, pelican um, from the Leave It in the Ground, I'll go over to the music book. And that that book is, you know, the skeleton of the book um, that runs through it is the story of my band and losing everything in the fire and, you know, having this correction in my, my path in life toward writing. And so that's a that's a big part of the book. But I'm also writing about, um, you know, the art of listening um, and performance as a public spectacle. You know, what, what, we, what we get from going to see, you know, like Taylor Swift, for example, in a huge auditorium with, you know, thousands of other people. Like, what does that spectacle do for us? And so that's part of the meditation on the book. And it's also kind of a meditation on music just as a phenomenon. I mean, what is music? Where does it live? You know, like, why does it in, induce us to um, carry it, you know, in our, inside of our ears, in our, in, our, in our lungs, to sing it out? Why does it convince us to carry it in, in our cell phones? And why is it in every store, in every elevator? It's a, it's a mysterious uh, you know, it's a mysterious force, and it's been my longest, I would say, running relationship in my life is my my relationship with music. So I'm just kind of trying to articulate some things about it that I've thought over the years as a practicing musician. Wow. I, I can't wait to talk to you about that one. <laughs> I have so, so many questions I can't for wait you. To, I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> Well, Deborah Marquardt, thank you so much for being here today. And please come back soon and and good luck with all of your projects. Thank you, Charity. It's been such a joy. Thank you. Deborah Marquardt, her latest book is Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. It's new and collected poems, poetry collections going back 30 years. Deborah Marquardt is a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences and teaches in the MFA program in creative writing and the environment at Iowa State University. She is also the Iowa Poet Laureate, nearing the end of her tenure. Coming up in just a moment, we'll find out about Kids Symphony with the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra is bringing classical music to students in rural Iowa. It's Kids Symphony, featuring professional storyteller Michael Bowden. And uh, he is the one of the co-founders of really inventive stuff. There will be public performances in Ottumwa, Mount Pleasant, Burlington, Fairfield, and Washington on November 18th and 19th. You can find more information at S-E-I-S-O. Dot U.S. And Michael Bodwin is with me now. Hello, Michael. Hi. It's wonderful to have you here. We also have Bob McConnell here, conductor and music director of the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra. Bob, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Charity. And Bob, I want to start with you because Kid Symphony, while, while this year's performance featuring Michael is exciting and different, you've been working with kids for a long time, right? Can you tell me a little bit about Kid Symphony? So I've been with the orchestra 33 years as music director, and I, I was telling somebody yesterday, I think they started Kid Symphony either around my first year or just before that. But uh, for years, it was a thing of kind of mothers bringing their children to the orchestra. And it's really evolved now into we use this as an opportunity to advocate for instrumental music education. So in our mind, we have a section of the program called um, Anatomy of an Orchestra. So kids see every instrument. They see how the sound is produced. And for young band students or kids thinking of going into bands or orchestras, it's a perfect opportunity. So I also say to people, it isn't just for kids because a lot of people haven't heard an orchestra live and so we we really call it a family concert, but we we like the name Kid Symphony, so we stuck with that. Right, it's catchy. Yeah, it's catchy. But I mean, it's a it's a family concert. It's an opportunity for a family to come out. It's inexpensive, and you're all over the place. I just said a tub one, Mount Pleasant, Burlington, Fairfield, Washington. So you're doing a lot of shows. Oh yeah, and then in addition to that, we're doing a woodwind quintet version of this with Michael in Washington, in Waco schools, and Mid-Prairie schools on Friday. So it, it, it is crazy. Um, Michael, how did you agree to this many performances? Well, to be honest, um, I, I, this is my third time with the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra, and I had asked Bob if it might be possible when I came back to do Peter and the Wolf this year to do wind quintets, because as I perform with orchestras around the country, like the Philadelphia Orchestra and the St. Louis Symphony and, and things, that sometimes I do it with wind quintets. And it is so fun. And, and it's nimble. Like, it's only five musicians and me. And, um, and so it's possible to come in and, and really wow people in a setting, a school setting, um, and so I'd asked, and, and the remarkable thing is, the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra is a little teeny, amazingly powerful organization, but it's little compared to, say, the Milwaukee Symphony or the, or the Utah Symphony. And they put these extra concerts in place this year. So normally it's three. This year it's five family concerts plus three school concerts. So I had asked, but it was really Bob and Jeff and Isaac and Mark and the entire team at the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra who did all the amazing work to get this to happen this week. And it is thrilling to be part of it. And you just mentioned Peter and the Wolf. So these concerts will feature uh, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf 
plus music yeah. from Star Wars, from Disney's Encanto. So real crowd pleasers there for yeah. sure. Um, and and Michael, I introduced you as one of the, the co-founders of Really Inventive Stuff. Tell me a little bit about what you do with Really Inventive Stuff. Well, my, my wife, Sarah Valentine, and I in, invented Really Inventive Stuff um, because we were, we've been doing family concerts with orchestras for uh, uh, approaching 20 years. This is my 18th year to do Peter and the Wolf, and our 20th year really is, uh, will be 2024, so it's next year. Um, but we, we, we started doing things with orchestras like Peter and the Wolf, Babar the Elephant, Tubby the Tuba, The Young Person's Guide, uh, The Toy Symphony, um, and we were drawn to perform in a way that we just found inspiring and fun, which is kind of vaudeville-inspired, using suitcases and coat racks and straw boaters and a bow tie and that kind of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, slightly inspired aesthetic. Bill Irwin is somebody people know from like Elmo's World uh, on Sesame Street has that same, a similar aesthetic. And so we started doing that and uh, we just enjoyed doing it. And if you enjoy doing it, the audience also enjoys it because you're in the presence of just people having fun and then the audience is having fun. And I think that may be one ingredient. But the other ingredient is that everything that we do in service of using like a feather duster for the duck or using a, a coat rack for the tree is all in service of allowing the audience to experience the music that Sergei Prokofiev wrote or Francis Poulenc wrote for the story of the bar. So our storytelling um, is really part of the audience's in to enjoy what Mr. Prokofiev wrote, for example. And I think that is uh, where our, our chief success is, lays because we want people to love the music and we're just there as a, as a fun uh, way for people to uh, experience it and hear it. Um, things like that. Well, I can imagine. I mean, we were talking about introducing kids to the instruments, to, to seeing a live orchestra. Uh, Michael, I can imagine having these visual elements also is a way to sort of build the muscles to music listening, because just sitting and watching musicians perform can be really wonderful. But for kids, that, that doesn't necessarily feel like a full experience, because that's not well, what they're used to. All right, here, here, here's a very short, and this is a true story. The first time we did Peter and the Wolf was 2005. And we, uh, Sarah and I designed it. We had suitcases, and I did all these things. This, this grandmotherly woman came up at, at the end of the concert, within a minute after the end of the concert, and said, I don't think that's what children want. That is very abstract. And, and Sarah and I were kind of gobsmacked. We were like, oh, oh, my gosh, this is the first reaction we had for this thing we invented. And then she walked away. And then literally, this is, the, this is the absolute truth. 45 seconds later, a dad and his little girl come up. And the dad says, we want to know if the duck is okay. And so Sarah and I looked at each other. And in, in this production, the wolf is a suitcase. So I opened up the suitcase and took out a feather duster and showed the dad and the little girl this feather duster. And the dad goes, see, the duck is all right. And Sarah and I, <laughs> Sarah and I thought... We have done exactly the right thing, and it, and it really happened. Because if you think about it, Sergei Prokofiev did the same thing. He, he made uh, an, an oboe, a duck, and a clarinet, a cat, 
and a flute, a bird. Now, we associate those with that, um, with those animals now. But in 1936, when he wrote it for the Moscow Children's Theater, people didn't necessarily associate that. And now they do. And it's all because Sergei Prokofiev loved children. He loved families. And he made something that every family program you can possibly think of stands on the shoulders of Peter and the Wolf. It is the most iconic thing. It is the most beautiful thing. And, you know, the woman that you had before, the De- 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 Deborah McCord, she was talking about her relationship with music. And I can, I can echo the same thing. And I bet Bob can, too. Spending your life learning and delving and deepening your relationship with pieces of music is, is one of the most amazing things. And these concerts could be the stepping stone for anybody. Like Bob was saying, you don't have to be a kid. They could be somebody who's 89 and go, oh, my gosh. Peter and the Wolf. That's amazing. And I, I think, you know, I think uh, Bob would agree. Well, yeah, there's yeah. a reason Peter and the Wolf gets played so much. It's fantastic. It's fantastic music. It's a fantastic story. And that's why I tell people it, it's played a lot because it's great and it's the best. Well, and it does. It's accessible in in multiple ways. It's not just a story that captures your imagination, but it does give you a relationship to the instruments that you don't necessarily have if they're all playing together at the same time. But I want to ask both of you, because here are two men who work in classical music. And Bob, I'll let you go first. When did you make that connection? What made you fall in love? Yeah, I, was, I watched the Leonard Bernstein um, young person's concerts or whatever they called them at that time. That's how I chose to play oboe. And I do want to uh, pick a bone with Michael because people have always associated the oboe with the duck, even <laughs> even before Peter and the Wolf. Yeah, I can assure you of that. But, but anyway, I saw that show. And now everybody, I was going to play in band no matter what. Everybody in my family, 10 kids, we all basically played and we're in music. But... Um, when we go out and do kids' symphony, I get kids coming up and, and, and they'll just – they've never heard an orchestra certainly before. And it might be the only time in their life that a lot of them will hear it. And that's part of why we like doing what we're doing where we're doing it. What, what about you, Michael? When did you fall in love? Well, to be honest, the, 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 there were several – there were a few places when I grew up in Iowa. So I was born in Des Moines and in, at Byron Rice Elementary School – um, we had an amazing music teacher named Mrs. Sampson, and I had Mrs. Uh, uh, Mrs. McIntyre for fourth and fifth grade, and they both did things with music and things with theater and drama kind of games in the early 70s. And then when I went to high school at Dubuque Senior High School, Fran Hedeman and, um, uh, was, was really the most amazing person and the most amazingly patient person for somebody who's enthusiastic like me. And we did musicals and we did plays. And then in college at the University of Northern Iowa, Greta Berghammer, uh, Tom Carlyle, and Jay Adelnott were all hugely influential on what it is that I'm doing. Uh, Greta Berghammer helped me invent a kind of show that I wanted to do to take to elementary schools, which is now what I'm doing going around uh, all of North America is just a big version of it, but it always kind of touched in music and rhythm and storytelling. And so I would rec- I would say teachers that I had throughout the state of Iowa in Des Moines and Ames, Dubuque and Cedar Falls, all were instrumental in helping me uh, develop a taste for music and storytelling. 
and helping me appreciate new facets as I got older. So it's not just one thing. It's a, and, and whatever is happening, I really am indebted to like Greta Berghammer and Fran Hedeman and people like that. Cause I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So Michael's performing with us because he cold called me. He called me. He had a gig in Milwaukee Symphony in Kansas City, and he had time. And honestly, we were we. I was looking for someone for that particular weekend, and he had listed in his references uh, the Allentown Symphony. And I called her up. She's a friend of mine. And she goes, he's the best guy we have ever had. She goes, you just can't believe how good he is. And that's been the reaction of our audiences. Well, and Michael, we've talked about inspiring kids to give music a try themselves, maybe to pick up an instrument, to join the orchestra, to join the band. But this is bigger than that, isn't it? Because you're kind of teaching them to be fluent in the language of classical music, which gives them an opportunity to engage in a different way. Well, you know, um, uh, like uh, Peter and the Wolf that I'm doing um, uses, uh, you know, coat rack and, and suitcases and things like this. And so does Babar the Elephant that I do with my wife, Sarah Valentine. Um, but in many ways, it's, it's just like if you were to watch Singing in the Rain and you see that moment where like Gene Kelly is dancing with that giant scarf and they've got the giant studio and it's, it's very abstract, but they're they're expressing things with the rhythm and the, the tonality of the music. That's the same thing we're doing with Peter and the Wolf. And it's a thing that people respond to because like, when you listen to something on the radio or you in your, in your house and it's a song you like, a lot of people begin to move because it's just fun to move to that. And you're moving your elbows and your knees and you're jumping up and down and bending and all these things. We're just doing something that's organized. And I believe it can be an inspiration for people then to say like, gosh, I really like, you know, Prokofiev. What's something else that he wrote? Cause yeah. he wrote a bunch of other really fantastic things. And, um, and then you have other people who lived at the same time that Mr. Prokofiev wrote. You can go back to Beethoven. You could go forward, you know, it, John Williams, the, the, all the, all the movie music is really, it's orchestral music and people love it because they associate it with Indiana Jones or Superman or, um, you know, Star Wars, but if you sit and listen to it, it's also its own thing. And so uh, I'm hoping that people will make that kind of connection from loving movie music or, 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 or music they hear on the radio with something that uses violins and cellos and oboes and talented conductors like Bob um, to uh, further their quest in their life to have delicious, yummy experiences with all sorts of creativity. And a few of those kids may go on to become musicians. I mean, Bob, you, we talked about it last time you were here. You were the only hog farmer maestro that I've ever met. (laughs) Well, it's, it's true. People suggest that all the time. And I say, look, it's a big world and we don't know what's out there. But I will say when he used the words delicious and yummy, I was sure he was going to say pork. But then he went, (laughs) he went in another direction. (laughs) 
Well, these, these concerts are coming up this weekend. So you're going to do a bunch of school shows and then you've got concerts. I mentioned it before. I'll say it again because this is kind of crazy. Atumwa, Mount Pleasant, Burlington, Fairfield and Washington on November 18th and 19th. You can find out information about the performances at SEISO.us. And Bob, this is an important part of your mission to make sure that you're bringing music to people instead of creating this this barrier where people have yeah. to come to you. Yeah, it really is. I, I mean, one of the things that people, when I initially got hired, I told the board, you know, I'm not going to just go out and play. We're going to talk and we're going to try to connect more, more than than I experience when I go to a concert. And there was some resistance to that initially. And I think now people, I mean, they really like it. And uh, of course, that's me talking. <laughs> but but they 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 tell me they like it, and the feedback we get is it's really popular. And I should point out Washington County, that's Highland High School. That's the closest thing to a lot of the listening area. And we'll be in a gymnasium. But honestly, Michael is so crazy, and the kids sense his craziness. And kids love craziness. So they, I, I can't tell you how popular it's been. Well, it's exciting. And Michael, I'm glad you're getting to come back to Iowa to perform. Yeah, I am too. I'm so excited. But I'm really excited to be on Iowa Public Radio. <laughs> that is a great thing. In fact, everybody should donate to Iowa Public Radio, <laughs> even though it's not the pledge drive. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Michael Bodowin is one of the co-founders of Really Inventive Stuff. He is a professional storyteller, and he'll be performing with the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra with their Kid Symphony coming up November 18th and 19th. A lot of performances. You can find out all about it at seiso.us. And Bob McConnell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Charity. We really appreciate it. Bob McConnell is the conductor and music director of the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. We had assistance today from Steve Cooper. I'm Charity Nebbe.